0: words I'd like to direct your attention to this afternoon are found in the book of Psalms. And we'll be looking at Psalm 138. Psalm 138. A Psalm of David. I will give thanks to you with all my heart. I will sing praises to you before the gods. I will bow down toward your holy temple. And give thanks to your name for your loving kindness and your truth. For you have magnified your word according to all your name. On the day I called, you answered me. You made me bold with strength in my soul. All the kings of the earth will give thanks to you, O Lord, when they have heard the words of your mouth. And they will sing of the ways of the Lord. For great is the glory of the Lord, for though the Lord is exalted, yet he regards the lowly, but the haughty. He knows from afar. And though I walk in the midst of trouble, you will revive me. You will stretch forth your right hand against the wrath of my enemies and your right hand will save me. The Lord will accomplish what concerns me. Your loving kindness, O Lord, is everlasting. Do not forsake the works of your hands. Please pray with me. Lord, there are many reasons for us to give thanks. And your word that we've just read magnifies a number. And Lord, it's our desire that you would be exalted. And Lord, we need your help in that endeavor. I pray that you would, you would magnify your word, that we might worship you as we should. And you would strengthen the hearts of your children here today. And Lord, if there's anyone here who does not know you, that they would see your greatness and your kindness. Your faithfulness, and that they too would turn to you and be saved. We ask that you would work in power through your word, and that you would revive us and strengthen us so that we might live for you and for your glory. We ask these things in your name. Amen. As you know, In just a few days this week, our nation will be celebrating Thanksgiving, and this is remarkable because Thanksgiving is really a profoundly religious holiday, because if you're giving thanks, you must be giving thanks to a person. And so it's worth asking, if somebody's celebrating Thanksgiving, who are they giving thanks to? It's possible they just are maybe giving thanks to people in their lives. But really the foundation of the holiday is a reflection of thanksgiving to God for how he has cared for us. And just as our conscience tells us that there are certain things that we should not do, like lie or murder or cheat or steal, likewise our consciences also inform us that there is someone to whom we should be giving thanks. Well, why don't we? And Paul tells us in Romans 1. Chris read this for us a few minutes ago. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. What this shows us is that a lack of thankfulness. To God is really the result of empty foolish and futile thinking and as created beings all people should be extremely thankful for God because of how he's cared for us but especially for especially believers should be thankful to God because he has saved us from his wrath and beyond that he has continued to bless us immensely. But again, because of our pride and because of foolishness, because of sin and selfishness, we frequently fail to give thanks. And instead, we, we, we're prone to complain and to grumble for what God has provided for us. And, and I say that merely to just point out the fact that we need to continually have our minds renewed, to be made aware once again of how great God's goodness is to us. And that's really what David does for us in this psalm, is he will highlight for us how great God is. And it's my hope that you too will be strengthened as you are reminded of God's faithfulness to us. There's really three parts to this psalm. First, David gives thanks to God for his faithfulness. And then he points out that all the kings of the earth will actually thank God for his ways. And then finally, he continues giving thanks as he affirms his confidence in God's faithfulness. Let's look at that first point first. David gives thanks for God's faithfulness. And you'll note that four times... Ah, that didn't turn out like I wanted. Well, I guess it's okay. It still reads. Sorry about that. Four times in these two verses, David gives thanks to God for his faithfulness. I will give thanks to you with all my heart. I will sing praises to you before the gods. I will bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to you for your loving kindness and truth. So that you can clear emphasis. David is going out of his way. To, 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 he's almost exploding in joy and thankfulness to God. He says that he gives thankfulness with all of his heart. That is... He's he's giving thanks not because he's driven by some external compulsion. He's not giving thanks because that's just what you do at Thanksgiving time. That's just what you do when you are about to eat a meal together. Everything in David is driven to give thanks. So again, he's not externally compelled. He's internally compelled. There's nothing more that he would rather do than to give thanks to God. Like a poet who's compelled to tell his beloved how much he loves her. David's own heart compels him to give thanks. So David gives thanks from a whole heart, but he also gives thanks boldly, you'll notice. The next phrase says, I will sing praises to you before the gods. The word gods here is the word Elohim. And David's Point here is that even though he is surrounded by all these pagan deities of the world and all who worship them, he will worship God alone. And it's worth noting that the psalm previous to this, Psalm 137, is a lament where the psalmist declares that how can he proclaim the Lord's song sing the Lord's songs in a strange land that is surrounded by Pagans and surrounded by their pagan gods. David says, I will give thanks in the face of all of these pagan deities. There's really, a, a, again, a sense of in your face here in David's statement, much like Daniel's praying after Nebuchadnezzar's decree. You guys know the story well. In Daniel 6, Nebuchadnezzar signed a decree that said, anybody who prays to any other god, Then the gods of Babylon would need to be executed, thrown into a lion's den. But this is what Daniel did in Daniel 6.10. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. See again, in the presence of pagan deities, David, like Daniel, won't bow to them. Instead, he says he will sing to Yahweh. David takes no heed of these pagan deities because he knows that there's only one true God, and there's only one God that he should fear or even be concerned about. As the psalmist says, For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but Yahweh made the heavens. And notice also, What David particularly gives thanks for. Because this is actually the central point of the psalm. The the first four lines where David's expressing his desire to give thanks to God. Climax here. When he says, and give thanks to your name for your loving kindness and your truth. We see these words often paired together throughout the Old Testament. And it's these two words that really deserve our attention. The first word, loving kindness, is the word hasid. It speaks of God's covenant faithfulness, his loyal love. The fact that God is committed to those that he has made a covenant with. He will not be unfaithful. And the second word is the word amot, which is truth. And it's, it's usually actually translated faithfulness. That is, God God, you can, can absolutely be relied upon. Whatever God says he will do, he will do, without a doubt. And when you put these two words together, it, again, it, it signifies God's absolute trustworthiness. God will do and accomplish everything that he says. And this is actually what Joshua, the, the leader of the Israelites who led them into the promised land, reminded the Israelites of. When he was on his deathbed. He had led Israel into conquering all these nations within the promised land. And as he's dying, he wanted them to know this. Joshua 23 verse 14. Now behold today, I am going the way of all the earth. That is, he's going to pass away. And you know in all your hearts and in all your souls that not one word... Of all the good words that the Lord your God spoke concerning you has failed. All have been fulfilled for you. Not one of them has failed. Isaiah says the very same thing. We're close to it. when he, In Isaiah 40 when he says, The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God will stand forever. And Jesus too declared in the Sermon on the Mount, For truly I say to you... Heaven and earth will pass away, but not one iota, not one dot. Those are markings of a a Hebrew letter, letter. Not one iota, not one dot will pass away from the law until all of it is accomplished. So David, likewise, is giving thanks to God because he has realized through experience and through knowing God's word that he is absolutely Trustworthy. And this is the point of the next phrase. For you have magnified your word according to all your name. This is an interesting phrase because literally actually what it says is you have magnified your word above your name. And so this is actually a real head scratcher for translators. Because how is it that God can magnify his word above his name i mean god's god's name is his character god's name is his glory how can his word be magnified above his name well this is the point see god has made known his character god has made known his name through his word see there are elements of God that we can know just by general revelation. Romans 1 again speaks to that. But we would not know the greatness of God and his character if, it would not, if he hadn't revealed himself through his word. Because no man can see God directly or they would die. Moreover, God has desired to display his greatness, to display his character, display uh, to, to tell us what he's like And so He's given us His Word as a gift. But moreover, God has actually tied His reputation, His glory, to His Word. Because if God's Word fails, just one Word, He's not God. Think about that. If just one promise doesn't come to pass, He's not God. And so in giving us his word, God, in a sense, has put all the chips on the table. When he declares to us that not one jot or not one tittle will fail. Because if they do, he says, I am not God. That's how God has magnified his word above his name. Just consider what a gift God has given to us. In a sense, kind of, God has laid it all on the line. I mean, He hasn't because He will bring it all to pass. So He's not really taking a risk. He's just affirming how trustworthy He is. And that's why He's given us His Word so that we can compare and contrast His faithfulness... as as he's always been faithful, as we've sung already today, as you've already experienced in your life, God wants us to see how completely trustworthy and faithful he is in comparison to this world, in comparison to every person, in comparison to kings, in comparison to nations, in comparison to even our spouses. God, unlike anybody else in all of this world, is absolutely faithful. We can trust him completely. But not only is God faithful in all his promises. We're reminded that he's faithful also to respond when we cry out to him. His faithfulness is demonstrated in in his word, but it's also demonstrated as he answers prayer. David notes, on the day I called, you answered me. You made me bold with strength in my soul. On the very day that David prayed, God was ready with an answer. It's like he was waiting for David just to ask. And he was there, ready with an answer. Now often we don't experience it. We don't see how God is answering our prayers. Either because we're not praying in line with the Spirit. We're praying selfishly. And so of course he's not going to give us something that would be harmful. But God does. Answer. God does respond when we pray. That's why he wants us to pray. And God answered David's prayer in giving him strength in his soul. That is that God gave David absolute confidence. In fact, this word can actually, is used in the Old Testament to describe uh, arrogant people who are so brash and bold. David, says, David is absolutely confident. It might look like arrogance to somebody else because he knows that God will answer his prayer. God will be faithful to what he's proclaimed in his word. And all of us, I think, at times have, have felt weak and helpless and afraid Things are outside of our control and, and anxiety begins to build up within us. And, and this is a good reminder of how we can respond at those times. We can pray for strength and ask God for boldness and then cling to his promises, because that's what David did. But it's not not just what David did, it's what Paul did. I want to point your go ahead and turn to Second Timothy chapter four in your Bibles. Paul, as, you, as he saw God's faithfulness in all of his life, at the very end of his life, as he writes this letter to Second Timothy, he points out to Timothy that he was feeling very alone. And he says in chapter 4, verse 16, when he stood before a Roman court to defend himself, He says, at my first defense, no one came to stand beside me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished and that all the Gentiles might hear. And I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. This was also the experience of Polycarp, who was a disciple of the Apostle John. He was a bishop of Smyrna and he was, he was captured by Roman officials who were seeking to wipe out the church. And he was drugged before, I believe was a Roman governor. And he was, he was warned that if he did not renounce Christ... That he would be killed. But the faithful Bishop Polycarp answered. This threat. Four and six years I have served him. That is Christ. And he has never done me injury. How then can I now blaspheme my king and savior? Polycarp's confidence. Paul's confidence. And David's confidence again all. Are rooted in the same source. It came from experiencing a lifetime of seeing God be faithful to his word. In all that he does. And we can have the same confidence. In fact this is why we should continually thank God for his faithfulness to us. And it's not only David who gives thanks, but he says that all the kings of the earth will as well. He says, All the kings of the earth will give thanks to you, O Lord, when they have heard the words of your mouth, and they will sing of the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. See, what this verse tells us is that the day is coming when all the kings of the earth We'll see how God has been absolutely faithful to all of his promises. And they too will realize what David has realized. That God is absolutely faithful. And that day will come when Christ returns to establish his throne upon the earth. When every knee will bow and tongue confess that he is Lord. These kings will see how God has brought all his promises to pass, and they will sing of the ways of the Lord. And notice the parallels with what these kings will do with verses 1 and 2. In verse 1, David gives thanks. In verse 4, king gives thanks. In verse 1, David sings. In verse 5, kings will sing. In verse 4, David mentions, you have magnified and then in verse 5 he says, for great is the glory. It's actually the same, two Hebrew, same Hebrew word that's being used there. Again, what David has realized, these future kings will realize, that all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. And they will sing of the ways of the Lord. This, this term ways refers to the way God brings about his purposes. In fact, it's often used as a, a term for marching That that the way God goes about his business. The way God walks. What he does. Kings will realize. How he conducts his sovereign plan. According according to his holy and righteous character. Kings will see how God functions. that That he functions with all power and authority. But also with complete justice. And mercy. And righteousness. And the point is. The way God functions is completely different from how all the kings of the earth function. Because this is not how kings function. They're not known for their holiness. They're not known for their justice even. Or their righteousness. And and you might be wondering, well, why is it that David emphasizes that it's kings who will be impressed to sing of the ways of the Lord? Well, it's because, again, the ways kings function is completely different than how God functions. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, doesn't function at all like the kings of the earth. And note particularly what he says next. For though the Lord is exalted, yet he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from the far. Is that how the kings of the earth function? Are the kings of the earth impressed and drawn? Are their affections drawn to the poor and the weak? The people that can't do anything for them? No, of course not. Because kings need to bolst up their reputation. They, they want to gather around them more powerful people. And they want to gather around them yes men who will tell them how great and wonderful and magnificent they are. But God doesn't need that. God doesn't need anybody to tell Him how wonderful and magnificent He is because He is in His essence. He's not trying to to create a name for Himself because He's glorious in His name. See, unlike the kings of the earth, God is no respecter of persons. He doesn't need men to fear Him or respect Him to keep His position. He doesn't need anybody to... Help add to his fame or worth. Finding people to honor him. Because again, he doesn't need him. He doesn't need to network. He doesn't need to politic. He doesn't need to bribe people. Or campaign. Or or come up with a, a way to brand himself. So that people will be impressed with him. He's glorious, period. But again, not so the kings of the earth. See, Every king, every celebrity, their glory is contrived. It's it's manufactured. It's just a big show. In fact, if you've ever known a famous person, they might be nice. They might they might be special in regard to other people, but they're not as special as they're made out to be on TV. They're just people. And so like in a concert, again, it's just a big show. But God's not like that. He doesn't need lights, he doesn't need smoke machines, he doesn't need loud music we like to sing to him we like doing that because it stirs our hearts but god doesn't need it he's not adding to his glory because he's all, he's glorious period by nature and so in, instead of being impressed by the proud people of the earth god it says knows them from afar the kings of the earth they need proud people they need Strong people around them so that they can feel secure and safe, but not God. In fact, those are, the, those are the people that God doesn't pay much attention to. They're insignificant to him. He's not impressed. Who is it that draws God's affection and attention? The lowly. I mean, how unlike the kings of the earth. On this one I will look, on him who is humble and contrite of heart and who trembles at my word. He says in Isaiah 66 two. See, the, the world teaches us that for, in order for us to succeed in life, we need to draw attention to ourselves. We need to make a name for ourselves. We need to get people to notice us. And that's why we, we learn to dress a certain way or to, to walk a certain way to drive a certain car. We, we, we feel this need to develop an image of ourselves upon the Internet so that we might be known, so that we might impress people. But again, getting the attention of people like that, it's like, it's like a cow walking through a meat market. It might draw attention, but if that's the kind of attention that you're getting from people, it's most likely that you're just going to be used. The only one whose attention we need is God's, because God alone can give us the help that we really need. We don't need the help that other people can give us. The only help we really need is God's help. And again, what captures his attention, what what bends his ear, what draws his eye, isn't strutting around like a peacock. In fact, it's just the opposite humility and contriteness see why is it that god is drawn to the humble and the lowly i think it's because they get it they get that there's nothing to be impressed with in themselves that they they under they recognize that they they don't they're not inherently glorious They recognize they are needy. They recognize they are desperate. They recognize they need a creator to take care of them. That's why they are prone to give thanks to their creator. Because they see how much he provides for them. Unlike the proud whose foolish hearts are darkened and who choose not to give thanks. Because they don't think they need God. It's the lowly who give thanks because they recognize how much they need him. See, one of the biggest lies that people believe is that they are the reason for their success. And this is why Paul has to tell the Corinthians, in Corinthians chapter 1, what is it that you have that, that you have not received? And if you've received it, why, why do you boast as if you hadn't received it? I mean, Paul's point is, anything you have is a gift. So there's no grounds of boasting. Instead, there should be giving of thanks. And I think this is why people will often expect God, too, to be impressed by their works. So they go do good things, or maybe they pray long prayers, or maybe they fast for a certain amount of time, or maybe they give a a, a large amount of money, and they think God's going to be impressed by that. That's not what impresses God. Because everything they have is a gift that He's already given to them. And what God wants is them just simply to recognize that and give thanks. Again, God doesn't need anyone. He doesn't need anyone. Like the kings of the earth who need powerful people to keep their positions. God doesn't need anyone. And that's why his attention and affection are towards the lowly. What a God we have all the kings of the earth one day will give thanks to Yahweh because they will realize that he works completely different than how they work, and they'll praise him they'll sing to him. This brings us to verse seven and David's third point where he gives he expresses his confidence in God because of god's constant faithfulness. And again, David's still giving thanks here, but he's giving thanks by expressing how he, he can, he has confidence because God has been continually faithful. As he says, though I walk in the midst of trouble, David knows you will revive me. You will stretch forth your hand against the wrath of my enemies and your right hand will save me. He's the tenor of this again is giving thanks to God Which gives him security and confidence. And he gives two reasons here for why he has absolute confidence in God. He knows that God will save him. And he knows that God will accomplish his purposes. He says, though I walk in the midst of trouble, you will revive me. And what's that sound like? What psalm does that remind you of? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because you are with me and your rod and your staff will comfort me. David has experienced this throughout his life. And actually this word that he uses here, trouble, it's often translated tribulation or distress. In the Old Testament, the word this word is used to describe intense inner turmoil when when a person feels like life is totally out of their control and and and, and fear is rising up in their heart and and they 're deathly afraid they 're feeling distress it 's also used to describe the pain of a woman in labor also in jeremiah six twenty four it, it refers to the terror. That a city feels at the approach of a raiding army. Once that army gets there, they're going to pick that place a park like locust. And you know what armies did in that time period. And these cities feel this fear, this tribulation, this distress. And David says, He knows that God will deliver him from that distress. But notice that even though David is a believer, David knows that that doesn't mean he will be spared from that trouble, spared from that trust, just distress. He may have to experience it. He may have to go through it. But what he says is, you will save me from that. See, God does not promise to keep us from trouble. What he promises is that he will Save us from trouble, that that trouble will not overwhelm us. He will revive us. And and that word there also deserves our attention. Again, it, it actually just means what it says in English to bring back to life. But again, revive can mean taking something that's dead and bringing it to life. But it can also just mean uh, a person who's near death; They're, the life has gone out of them, like a like a. A person wandering through a desert that's parched of thirst is revived as they're given water. David says, you will revive me. You will bring me back to life. Again, David is confident that God will revive him from the wrath of his enemies. But it's interesting, the wording and the context here suggests that David actually has more in mind than, than earthly enemies we should all recall that our greatest enemy actually is not earthly. Ezekiel 1820 tells us that the soul who sins will die. And Ephesians 2 goes one step further and it says because of our sin, all of us are like children of wrath by nature. But in verse 7 David actually prophesies how God will even save us from himself. God saves us from his wrath through his right hand, who is Jesus Christ our Lord. In Mark 14, Jesus declared to Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin, I am, and you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power, and coming with clouds of heaven. In fact, Peter's first sermon to the Jews, he declares this, For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. In fact, Stephen, when he was being stoned to death because of his proclamation of Christ to the Jews. It says in Acts 7:55, being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus sitting at the right hand of God. And Paul likewise declares in Romans 18:33 and 34, who will give a charge against God's elect? If it's God who justifies, who will condemn? Christ Jesus is he who died Yes, rather he was raised who is at the right hand of God. He is the one who intercedes for us. Jesus is the right hand of God who himself will save us from God's wrath, who will bring us up from the grave, who will revive us just as David prophesied. David has confidence that God will save him. And the second reason he has confidence is that he knows God will accomplish all of his purposes for him. That is, God will bring about everything that he has purposed in David's life. Again, recognize this. As sure as God's word is, that not one word will fail. As sure as God's word is, God will accomplish his purposes for David. None of God's purposes for David will fail. And this is particularly stunning when we recall how David failed. That even after David's immense failure in adultery and then murder and then really the the subsequent disintegration of his kingdom, his rebellion against God, Even after all of that, God didn't cast him off. And Christians too can have the same confidence that David did. Because God has promised us the same thing. Paul himself said in Philippians 1.6, I am sure of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will complete it. Even David's words in verse 8 your loving kindness, O Lord, is everlasting. I mean, that reminds us of what Paul says in Romans eight thirty-nine: that neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God. That's, that's what David is saying. David's security is in the character of God. It's not in himself. And if you are a believer in Christ, your future is absolutely secure in Him. But the contrast is also true. If you are not a follower of Christ, you have no security whatsoever. And what you think is providing you for security, it's a sham. It'll fail. There's only one thing that... That can provide you absolute security. And that's the trust in Christ Jesus, your God. And so we can have the same bold confidence David had. Because we too have the same promises for us. And so it's just, again, one more reason that we can give thanks. God will save us. And he will keep us saved. And David concludes with a prayer request, which, again, is made, light of in his, made in light of his confidence in God. He says, do not forsake the work of your hands. Again, another interesting phrase. Literally, it says, do not drop the work of your hands. See, so every now and then, one of, our, one of our kids will spend a lot of time building a, a really fancy, fancy Lego creation. And uh, it's, it's, it's often that his younger brother will find it and pick it up and bring it out to show everybody. And when we see the younger brother, the toddler with the Lego creation, we all want to say, stop, don't drop it. Because it's his brother's special creation that he spent all this time and work upon. And likewise, what David says here is, God, don't drop your special creation. Don't drop your work. And notice notice that the work here, it's not David's work, but God's work, which is David. The creation here is David. David says, "Don't drop me. You see the humility again. And why are you so thankful? So David, knowing God's faithfulness to his promise, pleads to God to complete the work that he has begun. Charles Spurgeon actually said that it was this very truth, that that the believers are securing Christ that actually brought him to salvation. He says, I tell you, it is this that brought me to Christ. While I was still young and thinking things over, I saw young men that were brought up with me, excellent in character, who left their homes to start their own careers. And after a while, the temptations of the world overcame them and they went astray and had no religion at all. But when I read that Christ gave his sheep eternal life, I looked at it it as a kind of moral life insurance, life insurance for my soul. And I came to Christ and I trusted him to keep me to the end. I will suffer a grievous disappointment if I ever found out that the life of God in me is not eternal, and that the new birth does not assure final perseverance. I did not buy a ticket for a quarter of a distance to heaven. I bought a ticket for the entire trip. I trust, no, I know that according to my faith, it will be done to me. And I am very glad to have my non-stop ticket with me. And I believe that unless the train of almighty grace gets derailed, which it never will, I shall get through to the celestial station as surely as ever divine power can draw me there. For so it is written, I give my sheep eternal life. And likewise, we too can give thanks with Spurgeon and with David because God has promised in his word, to accomplish all of his purposes towards us, and he has proven himself again and again and again to be absolutely trustworthy. let's pray god we we must give thanks to you for it would be it would be the height of arrogance for us not to want to turn. Our attention and our hearts to just express with joyful gladness your amazing faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto thee. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.